chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And remember, as we read, we're reading God's word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That's God's word. You may be seated. All right, I want you to finish this sentence for me. Actions speak... Louder than words. We all know that, right? We all would say that, right? We don't want to just be people who uh, talk the talk. We want to walk the walk because actions speak louder than words. Uh, Some of you have heard me tell this story, but one of my favorite examples of this was when I was in college at the University of Illinois, there was this guy named Preacher Dan. And Preacher Dan literally had a soapbox that he would preach from. It was such a cliche. It was wonderful. And uh, Preacher Dan was the target of all the ridicule of every student you could imagine. And uh, Preacher Dan was kind of like a broken clock. He was right twice a day. But most of the time, it was just, just wrong and angry and... And whatever. And I remember this one particular time coming out of Lincoln Hall after a class. It was right about noon. And uh, if you've never seen the University of Illinois, it's what college is supposed to look like. And there's this just big, beautiful quad with these crisscrossing sidewalks and grass. And it's just this gorgeous place. And you go out, and it's this sunny spring day. And I see this giant crowd gathered. And I go, I got to see what's going on. And so I go over, and Preacher Dan is preaching. And he's talking about all the evil sorority girls and all the, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And out of the crowd comes this other guy who begins to to preach. And this student, and he's like wearing this tie-dye shirt and looks sort of really radical. And he comes out and is, you know, is like competing against Preacher Dan. They're preaching at the same time, but they're kind of preaching against each other. So the other other guy, this student that's out there, he's, he's saying specifically, everybody says Christians are about love, but is this love? Do you see love? When you hear this guy, do you hear love? And it, it goes on like this for a few minutes, and the crowd gets a little bit bigger, and everyone leans in and gets a little bit closer, and it's like, what is going down? This is awesome. I love college. <laughs> and Preacher Dan's talking, and the other guy's talking, and, uh, you know, over, and finally Preacher Dan, he wheels around, and I'm, you're going to think this is a preacher story. I'm not making this up. This is real. He turns around, and he goes, I do love you, you miserable wretch. Right? And the whole crowd of students did exactly what you just did. 
It was this uproarious laughter because that was such a ridiculous thought, wasn't it? I mean, why? Because actions speak louder than words. Now, in that case, adding miserable wretch sort of was the clue that maybe Dan wasn't really feeling it. But, but I, you can say, I love you, and yet say it in a way, and say it with a posture, and say it with a demeanor, and even a tone of voice that says everything but, I love you. Well, Jesus has been saying some incredible things here. He's been announcing that a kingdom of God is at hand. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 15. He's saying that in light of that, everybody should repent and believe. They should reorient how they think. They should stop trusting in their own wisdom and ingenuity and good works, and they should start trusting in him, that he's come with this kingdom. We saw last week that specifically he invited a number of people to reorient their whole life and follow him. And up to this point, we've mostly just seen words. But is there some action that's behind it? Is there something that we could see about Jesus that would demonstrate that he's not just another good moral teacher, but that there's something about him that is different, that is above, that is supreme? Because actions speak louder than words. Well, that's what we're going to see here today. We're going to see specifically the authority of Jesus magnified in a number of different ways. This whole passage, this whole story is about the authority of Christ. And we're going to see it not primarily through his words, but primarily through his actions. So that's what we're going to look at today. So here's what we're going to, we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about unrivaled authority of Jesus, the restorative authority of Jesus, and the ruling authority of Jesus. So first, the first thing we see is the unrivaled authority of Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Just again, to try to remind you, this is a real place, this is real stuff, this is not mythology, these things really happen. I want to show you where Capernaum is. Uh, This is from a map, Uh, maybe you have a map like this in in a Bible that you have. Uh, I put some red squares around it because it's sort of hard to see, but the, the red square at the bottom is Jerusalem. The red square you see there at the top, right on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, is Capernaum. The Sea of Galilee, that's, I showed you some pictures of that last week. That's where Jesus called Andrew and Simon and James and John. They were fishermen there. And so now they're headed there to Capernaum. A lot of Jesus' ministry at this point takes place in Galilee. And then there are a few moments when everyone goes up to Jerusalem. Did you notice I said up to Jerusalem? You go, that's down. What are you talking about? Well, in the mind of Jews, not only was Jerusalem a higher elevation, but it was the supreme place. So you never went down to Jerusalem, you always went up. And so you can get confused sometimes when you read the Bible because it'll say they went up to Jerusalem. You go, I thought that was south. And so anyway, just to orient you a little bit of where this is, it says they went into Capernaum and they went into a synagogue. Now, I had a chance a number of years ago to to go to Israel and I got to stand in basically the synagogue where this happened. I want to show you a few pictures of it. Uh, This synagogue... Uh, is right there, and actually this is, uh, this is built probably in the 4th century A.D., and on top of it, uh, you know, below the, I'm sorry, below these beautiful white rocks is this uh, dark basalt rock. It's, it's a very black kind of rock, and those are the, the actual ruins of the 1st century synagogue. So there's my, doesn't Molly look great? She hasn't changed a bit. <laughs> Notice I didn't put any pictures of me in there. Anyway, Um, So this is Molly. She's standing in the synagogue. You get just kind of a little bit of a feel uh, for what this synagogue kind of area was like. This isn't a huge area. You could probably walk around Capernaum in about 15 or 20 minutes. 
Uh, but at this point, it would have been a, a significantly sort of dense uh, area. Uh, one thing else I want to show you, just because it's going to come up later, is um, th- there's also a reference that they went to Simon and Andrew's house. And uh, that's the thing that looks kind of like a spaceship. Go ahead and uh, show us that, Thomas. There's uh, Simon and Andrew's house. <laughs> now, like, wait a minute, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> so this is actually pretty cool. So what this is, is actually a church. So the Roman Catholic Church built this church, and it's elevated, and underneath it, you can see there's a number of walls. You can see the gate there where tourists go, and they can look at it. This is really neat, because in most cases throughout history, whenever a significant site uh, happened, the church would just build on top of it, and so you kind of lost the site. But this church was actually built, elevated above it, and actually, if you go in the church, the floor of the church is glass, so you can look down into the ruins. Um, it's a really kind of a cool thing, and uh, this, church, th- this place became a very significant uh, place in the early church in Capernaum. And just so you know, I'm standing, as I'm taking that picture, at the edge of the synagogue. So this first story we're going to see takes place in the synagogue. Just down the street is where the rest of this story is going to take place. See this. It's a real thing. It's a real place. These are real people, real events. It's not make-believe. So they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. The Sabbath was uh, basically Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. This probably would have been Saturday morning as they gathered together at the synagogue. It says in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished. This word means to cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Right? This is not like we sort of you know, casually throw around awesome, right? Like, everything is awesome. Listen, everything is not awesome. If everything's awesome, nothing's awesome, okay? If everything's amazing, nothing's amazing. If everything's astonishing, nothing's astonishing. These people were astonished. They were overwhelmed. They were filled with amazement to the point of being, oh my gosh, what is this? There's another word that's used later on in this passage that says that they were amazed at what they saw. So there's an amazement, there's an astonishment at the unrivaled authority of Jesus. Well, how does that authority, that unrivaled authority, how do we see that uh, lived out here in Jesus' actions? Well, first we see it in his teaching, right? So this part is kind of the words, but even in teaching, there's there's a way in which you teach, there's a demeanor with which you teach. And they picked up on something unique there. It says in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority. This word authority uh, means that Jesus had, this is what they recognized. This is what they saw. They're going, he's teaching as though not only does he have the power to say what he's saying, but he has the right to say it. It has the idea of teaching out of the original stuff. Right, like I loved being able to preach through Romans a couple years ago. That was an absolutely wonderful thing. But I can't wait to get to heaven and to talk to Paul, the apostle, and say, Paul, okay, chapter seven. Did I get that right? Here's what I interpreted as, did I read it right? I can't wait to do that, right, because he's, He's the original writer. There's an authority that he has that, that's, that's unique. Well, well, this is what they're saying. They're going, man, 
No one teaches like this guy. Wow, he, he teaches like he really knows what he's talking about. He teaches like he's in charge of this whole thing, not like the scribes. Now get this. You might read that and think, oh, the, the people didn't like the scribes. No. The scribes were Bible teachers. The scribes were, were lawyers. The scribes taught in significant educational settings. The scribes were highly revered. They had the best seats in the synagogue. When they came in the room, people stood. Scribes were highly esteemed. This isn't to say that the scribes weren't anything. This is to say how much better Jesus was. So these men, for whom everyone stands when they walk in the room, these people hear Jesus and they go, this is teaching with authority. He knows what he's talking about. Now, Mark doesn't give us any of that. He doesn't tell us what did he say, how did it work. But there's a few other things we can deduce from reading the other gospel writers about the kind of teaching that Jesus had that was so authoritative. There are some phrases you hear as you read through the gospels and you see it in Jesus' teaching. Uh, One we'll read in a number of chapters in Mark 10 where Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, or he'll sometimes, Bible translators will translate it as, truly, truly, or amen, amen. What it's saying is, this is the truth. Listen up. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's saying, listen, this is the truth. Amen and amen is really what it says. Another thing Jesus did, this is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He'll say something like this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, that's one of the Ten Commandments, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Listen, you don't talk like that unless you have authority, because if you did, you'd be adding to Scripture. Deuteronomy 4 warned serious warnings against adding to what God would say. And so Jesus comes and he says, you've heard, don't commit adultery, but let me tell you this, because I have the authority to say this, if you look at a person with lustful intent, it's the same as adultery. In fact, you've already committed adultery in your heart or you wouldn't be looking at him like that. That's the kind of authority that Jesus had. This is the kind of authority that we resist. This is the kind of authority that we don't feel very comfortable with unless we're the authority. But they saw Jesus and they went, wow, oh my gosh. No one teaches like this man. I don't know if if you spend much time online or on social media or anything like that, but the internet broke this week um, with a really, really important story. There was just no, ISIS couldn't do anything to get our attention once this happened. Um, So let me just ask you, what color is this dress? (laughs) If you don't know what happened, uh, somebody posted this picture on a website and said, my friends and I can't agree on whether this dress is white and gold or blue and black. So they posted it and it broke the internet. So let me just ask you, just out of fun, curiosity, how many of you think this is white and gold? You look at it, you see white and gold. How many of you see blue and black? Really? You really do? I've tried to see blue and black. I can't see it. Right? And so this is the nature of... <laughs> this is so fun. I love this. I thought this would work. It really did. So some of you, 
you really thought it was blue and black. When you, you look at that, that looks blue and black. Wow, that's amazing. So this is what happened online, is, is the white and gold people were going, how can you not see it's white and gold? Right? And the blue and black people are going, are you blind? Were you crazy? Right? And, and like serious vitriol, like people lost friends. Uh, people, you know, marketers got real into it. You know, Apple released the picture of their white and gold iPhone and said, the new black and blue iPhone. You know, people got really into this. Oreo had a good time. It was just, it was really interesting. So, so we can speculate, we can conjecture, but, but what color is the dress? It has a color, right? It, can we all agree it can't be both? It's like if you're holding the dress in your hand, it wouldn't be both white and gold and black and blue. It's, it's, it might be neither. It might be neither of those things, but it can't be both. It's got to be something. How do we get the answer? Who has the authority to give us the answer? The one who made it. Well, who made it? Good question. Roman originals out of the UK. And in case you were wondering, here's the dress for sale on their website. Dang it. It's black and blue. Now, my rods and cones, I, if you go, I, I still I don't see it. I don't see how they, I, they just don't look the same to me. But, but the point remains, the maker has the authority to say what it is. So what was it that they saw and heard when they heard Jesus teaching with authority? They heard the maker saying, this is what's true. They, they weren't hearing a, a scribe, an interpreter. They weren't hearing it secondhand. They were hearing it from the maker's mouth. They were amazed. Well, what else did they experience that showed the unrivaled authority of Jesus? Well, next, and this is uh, even more remarkable, verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That's the way that uh, Mark often talks about demons. There was a man possessed by a demon. Now, some of you may legitimately ask, you, honestly, like you really believe that there's demons? Well, here's the thing. If there can be a spiritual God... And if there can be angels, then there can be demons. You have to say there's, there's no possibility of any spiritual beings at all, including God, in order to fully reject demons. And we see the work of demons in individuals' lives. We see it in the systems and structures of society. Things where if you were to, just think of this for a moment. If you were to ask anybody, hey, what really matters in life? What would they tell you? Family, relationships, friends. No, no, no. Is money more important? No. We know it's not. But there's a whole system of our culture that communicates money's the most important thing. Have you ever thought, why is that? It's because it's demonic. There's demonic influences in people's lives, in systems, in cultures. These are real things. Jesus encounters a man possessed by a demon, and he cries out, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it amazing? The only people in this story so far that know who Jesus is are demons. So if you say, well, I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. 
That's not faith. At least any more than a demon has. Wouldn't you like to have a little more faith than a demon? So, so it's not just acknowledging what's true, that's trust, that's faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's trusting, it's, it's believing, it's relying on him. And this man is scared to death. These demons inside of him are scared that they're going to be destroyed. It says in verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. I want you to notice something. This is not an epic struggle against good and evil. Right? We watch movies, or you watch the show 24, or you watch the Jason Bourne movies, right? Every kind of action movie, at the end of the movie, there's always a scene where the good guy is fighting with the bad guy, and they take punches, and they take kicks, and they're in a car chase, and they're doing all these things. And just at the last moment, when you think the hero can't pull it off, boom, he destroys the enemy. That's not what's happening here. This is Jesus with a word saying, shut up, go away, and it happens. Now, Jesus wouldn't talk like that, kids. He wouldn't say those words. <laughs> he said, be silent and get out of him. That's what's going on. He, he says the word, and it happens. That's different, by the way, than what you see a number of other places where, where disciples are trying to heal, trying to cast out demons. Right? If you watch, if you've ever been, I've been around, I, I've been around demon-possessed people. I've never seen one exercised or one cast out, but I've heard stories about that, and it rarely has this kind of power. Why? Because Jesus has unique, unrivaled, unparalleled authority. And that's what amazes them. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority there's that word again authority he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him why can Jesus do that because he made them the healing continues in verses 29 to 34 Simon Peter's mother-in-law verse 30 is laying there ill and they tell him about her. In verse 31, he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Again, he's got authority, not just over demons, but over a fever. By the way, this is evidence that Jesus is a loving God. Who else would heal a mother-in-law? <laughs> I, I had to take it. It was too... I know it's cheap, but I had to take it. And... Uh, Betsy, if you ever watch this online, I love you. All right. He's got authority. They show up, people at the door. Heal this person, heal that person. It just continues all night long. Here's what you got to see. Only God can do the stuff Jesus is doing. The whole question throughout this early part of Mark is, who is this Jesus? Again, the demons see, no one else does, but what they do see is that actions speak louder than words. Jesus doesn't have to say, I'm God. He just shows it. He just does what only God can do. Unrivaled authority. But it's not just power, because Jesus has power. It's a good power. It's a not just unrivaled authority, but it's also restorative authority. This is power. This is authority being used 
for good. Jesus isn't just tearing down evil. He's rebuilding people's lives. This is what was predicted that what would happen when the kingdom of God came in places like Isaiah 61. Look at this. Jesus actually quotes this in in Luke's gospel (coughs) when he teaches at a synagogue in Nazareth. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. What did... What did the new age represent? It represents a restoring kingdom. People experiencing freedom and wholeness and relief from their ailments. Spiritual and physical. This is a holistic approach that Jesus has. Jesus, get this, he is not just concerned about getting people saved into heaven. Right? If that's all he cared about, he would have done a lot of different things than this. He wouldn't maybe even need to do this. He could just say a lot. And sometimes, I think, I think if, if I were to ask most Christians, why did Jesus do all the miracles he did? I think what most Christians would say would be something like, well, he did it as a sign to prove that he was really God. Close, but no. That's part of it, right? What he did definitely were signs. But when Jesus says in the opening part of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's doing in all these signs and all these casting out demons and all these miracles, what he's doing is giving you a foretaste of it, a preview of it. He's saying in the kingdom of God, people are whole. In the kingdom of God, people are strong. In the kingdom of God, people are vibrant. Let me show you a picture of it. Which is why our ministry needs to be both proclamation and demonstration, word and deed. We have a fantastic ministry. It's, it's another of the best-kept secrets at our church called Open Table. And uh, through Troy Blakemore's leadership, he's a member here, it's spread to a number of our other redemption congregations. And what it is, is it's a group of people from our church who come alongside a family that has significant needs, uh, usually from a variety of situations and reasons and circumstances, and they come and they surround that family and they walk with them for a year, year and a half to provide holistic help to help people get their lives back on track. Not just giving money to it, not just throwing time at it, but all of it together, a holistic approach. That's what ministry is. We're gonna look at that more next week. Jesus had unrivaled authority. Jesus had restorative authority. What's all this mean for us? Here's the last thing. Jesus has ruling authority. What are we supposed to see from this? Right? We weren't there to hear the authoritative teaching of Jesus and to see the authoritative way he cast out demons and healed the sick. We weren't there for that, but we have it in this account preserved because Mark wants his readers to see something. What are we supposed to see? 
we're supposed to see that Jesus is king. And the king has absolute authority. One commentator I was reading about this made this fantastic point. He said, most people come to Jesus wanting love or wanting help, but not wanting to be ruled. But when you come to Jesus, that's not your option. When you repent and believe, when you reorient your whole life around this king who's announcing a kingdom, you aren't just receiving love and help, you're submitting to him as king. Now this is hard for us because we, we're a democracy. We have rights. We can protest. We can speak out. And those are good things in our country. I think democracy is a wonderful thing. And C.S. Lewis is a tremendous thinker. He, he said that, um, one of the things that was really interesting about democracy that he said was that, that democracy is, isn't good because people are so good and they should have their voices heard. He says it's because people are so bad that no one should have absolute authority. Right? It's because of the fall of sin that democracy is a good thing. If there was no sin in the world, you could have God as king, and it would be wonderful to have a, a benevolent dictator, God. Because there would be no sin. There would be just righteousness and holiness and goodness. Right? But the reason we need democracy is because of sin. It's not because of human goodness. Here's what Lewis says. He says, we are so fallen that no person can be trusted with unchecked power over others. Aristotle said that some people were fit to be slaves, but I reject slavery because I see none fit to be masters. Who's fit to be master? Jesus. Only Jesus. So my question for us is, are you receiving and experiencing and trusting Jesus as Lord, as King, as Master? Is he just one who loves you? Is he just one who helps you? Or is he one who rules you? Does he have the kind of authority in your life that when he speaks, you obey? Now, the answer for all of us is, sadly, no. We all sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There are sinful, wicked things that we do that we shouldn't. There are good things that we ought to do, and we don't do those. There are sins of commission. There are sins of omission. We're sinners. But when Jesus comes into our life, with his kingdom, and he begins to restore and to rebuild our lives by faith in his life and death and resurrection, and he begins that project, we no longer are people who go, well, boys will be boys. You know, everybody sins. No, we become people who, who love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yeah, not perfectly, but progressively. Not always, but increasingly, do you see your relationship with God as one which requires obedience? Get this. Not to get relationship with God, but because you have it and God is king. Do you see it that way? 
There are lots of examples, lots of things we could talk about. I thought of just, just three that I wanted to mention. I don't know, maybe the Lord brought these to mind because there's somebody to hear this and you can make other applications that you think are appropriate. Places where I, I wonder, are we, are we recognizing Jesus' authority? Right, again, that word means Jesus didn't only have the power, he also had the right. Do we recognize that? Are we, are we living under that? Are we submitting to it? Here's the first question. Will you be baptized as a believer? Will you be baptized? Josh said that on Easter, we're going to have four services. And God willing, at all four of those, we're going to have opportunities for you to be baptized. Will you be baptized as a believer in Christ? The pattern of Scripture is that people trust in Christ and they respond with baptism. Right? Maybe you're like me. You were baptized as an infant and... Maybe like me, you don't remember that. Anyone? I don't remember that. I'm not going to ask. I don't remember. But I do remember at 17, putting my faith in Christ, and then after that, being baptized. Sadly for me, I waited around. And as I tell my kids at home, delayed delayed obedience is disobedience. So are you a believer who's trusted in Christ and you've repented and you've believed and your trust in Christ is not on the basis of your works, it's on the basis of Christ's work for you and you've put your hope in that but you haven't gotten baptized? Maybe because you don't want to get wet or you don't want to be in front of people or it's just, it hasn't felt like the right time or maybe because you're trying to clean yourself up first forgetting that Jesus has already done that for you. But if you're a believer in Christ, whether that's been for five minutes or five years or 15 years and you have not been baptized, you're in disobedience. You should get baptized. Back to your connection card. You can, there's a place there that says, I'm interested in baptism. Check that. Mark that. We can change that in a month. Second area maybe where we need to think about this is, will you extend forgiveness in relationships? Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, when he's teaching people to pray, forgive us our debts or our trespasses or our sins, however you say it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Do you know what that prayer is really saying? It's saying, saying, God, use the same standard in forgiving me that I use in forgiving others. You sure you want to pray that? Right? God has called us to live with one another in peace, to as far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all, to bear with one another, to forgive one another. Where relationships are broken, to mend them. Are you pursuing that? Or are you in a hard-hearted way going, well, I'm done with that relationship. There's no hope for this anymore. That's sin. It's a hard-hearted way. That's treating people in a way that Jesus has not treated you. Repent, believe, obey. Last area. What about purity? Purity of thought, purity of heart, purity of mind. We saw this earlier, what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said... 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then look at this next part. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Whoa. This is not, did did anyone hear in that an attitude that was like, hey, you know, it happens to everybody. You know, (laughs) oh well. It's, It's my struggle. Did anyone hear that? I heard, tear out your eye. And if you don't fight this, you might go to hell. You go to hell? What do you, what do you mean? I, I trust Jesus. Do you? Do you trust him? Do you love him? He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Do you love him? Tearing out your eye in a fight against sin it is not a way of earning your salvation, but it is a way of demonstrating that you have it. We could go on and on and on. But this is a message we need to hear. The authority of Jesus demands that we obey him. There's a way that we say this. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's a way that we say this all the time around here. We say it like this. All of life is all for Jesus. You've heard that phrase? All of life is all for Jesus. Do you know what that's basically saying? Jesus is Lord. Over every life, over every square inch of the universe, Jesus is Lord. Some of you are thinking, this this doesn't sound very gospel-driven. This doesn't sound, I thought we were gospel-centered. This sounds like you're, you're giving rules. No, no, no. This is the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The word Jesus means God saves. It's Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, the one who suffered and died, who was treated as a sinner, even though he never did it himself. It was Jesus who did that, who is Lord. So his people cannot go, "Eh, thanks for the grace, but I'm going to do what I want. No. If you love him, Listen, I look around this room, I, I've talked to many of you, I know so many people here love the Lord. And maybe just because of the, the, the wave after wave of temptation and discouragement, maybe you've just sort of made peace with it. Maybe you've gone, well, that's just how I am. No, no. Jesus has authority. Follow him. Trust him. Repent. Believe. And as a response, as a result of that, as evidence of that faith, Obey him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. Least of all me. So God, where I have been unclear, I pray that you would cover everyone here with grace. And God, where I've been faithful to Christ and his message, God, I pray that your spirit would use it to convict us of sin and to lead us in the righteousness. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.